privilege. And Spirit, as always, but especially so today, rely on you. We rely on you to expose the things that we need to be have exposed to show us, to instruct us, to show us about our own hearts, perhaps to have wisdom and discernment concerning the hearts of people we have to to work with. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. First of all, today, Jesus exposes our harmful perspectives. Jesus exposes our harmful perspectives. You can turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And today we're going to be starting in verse 33. Mark chapter 9 and verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about... Who was the greatest? I want to talk to you about the best time to argue. You want to know what the best time to argue is? Here, this was the best time for the apostles, the disciples to argue. They had recently seen... That unforgettable transfiguration where Jesus was changed before their eyes in a way they will never forget for the rest of their lives. They also, right after that, had seen a very spectacular healing episode at the foot of the mountain. As well as had seen their own weakness and their inability to cast out a demon like they had before. Best time to argue. And then, they'd also just very recently heard Jesus teach them and tell them that he was going to be dying soon. So folks, this was the best time for them to argue about who was the greatest. I'm being a little bit facetious. Quite a bit, actually. It's amazing how in our hearts we can cling on to things that cause us to argue and bring us into conflict with other people at their most ridiculous times. We have the capacity within our hearts to be just this foolish and have this sort of foolish Um, craving within us. So let's talk about the desire to be great. It looks rather stupid. It looks rather foolish as we, as an outside spectator, read these scriptures. But I can guarantee you, and I, I hope that you can do the work in your own imagination, that these disciples, as they walked along the road, did not plan to be so foolish with one another did not plan to try to compare themselves to one another and try to look better than everybody else. 
and to decide who was the greatest. That wasn't in their plans, but as it is with us, as we're gathered around and around each other, there's certain flashpoints where somebody says something or they share their perspective or their idea about things, and it really just ticks somebody else off. And then they just get drawn into this discussion and this debate or, you know, I think it should be this way, or you, should, you don't have a good idea about things, you don't know what I've gone through, or, or this, this whole mess, of, ball of wax of things that can happen when people get around each other. We've all observed it as we see other people, and then we've all been embarrassed as we've considered how we've gotten into a conversation and did not go the way we planned it to go. And we're a little embarrassed to some of the things we said. This idea of trying to be great or holding on to things that are very important to us and being willing to minimize other people is a real struggle for us. And I want to take your minds back to this idea of what happened with Satan. If you look in the scriptures, we're not going to turn there this morning, but to Isaiah chapter 14 and then Ezekiel chapter 28. Those are the two Old Testament passages that give us what we think, we can't be absolutely sure, but we think of what happened when Satan exalted himself against God and fell from his place as an exalted angel and then became who he is today. And if you read those passages, it talks about Satan exalting himself above God. And desiring something that was above God. A position that was greater than God. In those passages, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28 are talking about historical earthly leaders. The prophet Ezekiel is, if I remember correctly, talking about the king of Tyre. And the prophet Isaiah is talking about the king of Babylon. But right in the middle of those passages... It seems like he's talking about something way more impactful than those leaders. And something that was, in fact, happened in eternity. Instead of necessarily here on this earth. It's very exalted language. Even for a powerful earthly leader. And at the heart of that was the desire to be great. Along with the desire to be great, there is the desire to compete. They go hand in hand. We like our friendly competitions and we like to play sports and there's nothing wrong with those things. But how often, especially in sports, do we see fights break out and we see ugliness come from people who are competing? This desire to compete is also along with the desire to be great. And then we talk about sports fans. You see, when, when you have these professional sports players playing sports, it's like a proxy war among people. Do you know what I mean by that? It's the idea of they're not fighting each other, but they're fighting each other through somebody else. And so they're trying to achieve their personal glory through somebody else. Countries do this, by the way. You look at the mess that has happened in the Middle East... And you look at it historically and you realize that the great countries of this world, especially after World War II, began to fight proxy wars through our Middle Eastern countries. 
So it happens on a very small level among people in communities. happens on a large level internationally. It happens also through issues. People with the desire to be great or to win or to have their way to look good. They find ways to compete. And they find ways to compete in very interesting ways. So as we consider this in another practical way, this shows up in Philippians chapter 1. Starting in verse 15, I'm going to read those verses to you. Paul, is in his letter to the people of Philippi, says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So here as we're talking about this desire for for greatness, and then it brings you to a point of trying to compete. This is what happens often in Christian ministry. Even as folks are giving the good news, there is a sense of competition for their way and their idea of what's right and their idea for their own glory. And there's these petty jealousies that can happen between people, especially when someone seems to be getting a lot of success and you don't think they deserve it. You say, what's this have to do with our passions today? It has everything to do with it. Because this is the heart of this foolish craving for greatness. And it takes on many forms. It's a mistake for us to just look at the disciples and say, well, that doesn't apply to me at all. The heart of sin is a heart of pride and a heart of selfishness. It takes many, many forms. And so you have a desire to be great, to have your way, to have to look good. That brings you to the desire to compete. And when you compete, then the result is an argument, a conflict. This is just the way the chain of events go. And in Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 10, it says ESV there, but that's the, supposed to be the NLT says, pride leads to conflict. Those who take advice are wise. So we talk about this idea of pride and conflict. It doesn't mean that every time that there's conflict, there is because of pride. But many times it is. This is so hard for us to deal with. It's, it's amazing how there can be this low-grade, prim and proper conflict between people where they're jockeying with each other for position with their words. Or there is a very benign, um, nice-sounding phrase that someone says, but the other person who it was targeted to knew exactly what it meant And it was not at all benign. And this can happen among people where there's this, you know, I'm going to get my perspective out and I'm going to make sure they know it. 
And I'm going to say it in such a way that they have to listen to it and they can't fight back. Low-grade competition for greatness, for giving your perspective, for trying to make your way look good and someone else's way look bad. (laughs) It happens a lot, my friends. And let me just say that Jesus knows. He is aware and it burdens his heart. I guarantee you as he approached his disciples and asked them what they were discussing on the way that his heart was heavy. Just perhaps as you have watched other people in your life who don't get along and they're in their you know, as nice as way possible, but as, as pointed as possible, trying to get their way out and make their perspective known, and they are trying to jockey for position and jockey for their way, it burdens your heart. It hurts. It makes you sad. It, it grieves you. How much more, if it grieves you, does it grieve our Lord Jesus Christ when his children are doing this? Jesus knows, and he exposes our harmful perspectives. Jesus lovingly, he's not malicious, he lovingly is trying to bring things and to show us if we have eyes to see. The work of the Spirit also in tandem with Jesus is working in our hearts and showing us now, this is uncomfortable for us. I don't relish this for myself. I don't want this experience where Jesus and the Holy Spirit are showing me that this has been my heart. I don't relish it for others either, most of the time. Sometimes I think in my heart, well, I don't, I know this is what happens in my heart. I think, well, that. They really need to know the error of their ways. And we get this little haughty spear in our hearts. Well, yeah, they, they really do need to find out how bad they are or how wrong they are. And often in those moments, the spirit smites our heart again and shows us we're, we're doing the same thing we think other people are doing. Often how intense we are with how wrong we think other people are shows how proud we are. To catch that, there's a correlation there. There are people who intensely try to show how wrong other people are and how right they are. And there's a direct correspondence to how proud they are. And Jesus knows. And... He seeks to show us. Now, along with this, this is a difficult topic, and perhaps that's why I've struggled with it so much. Um, There is pain involved here. There is aggression here. There's shame, and there's even suppression. Suppression because we want to push it away and don't want to acknowledge it. We want to hide from it. And again, I'll take you back to, you may be sick of me saying it, but Adam and Eve, as soon as they heard the voice of the Lord, when they knew they were guilty, they ran from him. 
It is amazing when we know that we are guilty, how intensely active we are to try to avoid that guilt from being exposed. There's a lot of pain here. And there can be a lot of aggression. We can even lash out at other people in a way to cover up our own problem. We can struggle with shame. This is why, my friends, as God's people, humility is an amazing virtue. And a willingness to confess. And this is why, once again, the what Jesus did for us on the cross is so powerful because we come to this crushing moment where we realize how bad we are, how guilty we are. And then we see Jesus' blood afresh for how wonderful it is as it washes our sin away and makes us white as snow. So consider what Jesus is showing you. He does expose our harmful perspectives. Are you listening? Jesus exposes our harmful perspectives. And Jesus teaches us healthy perspectives. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them. Here Jesus took the official posture of a rabbi. And he called them and he was going to have an official teaching moment. He had the 12 circle around him and listen as he sat in his position of teaching. You and I are learners of Jesus. We are lifelong learners. When we become a follower of Jesus Christ, our lifelong posture is one of a learner of Jesus Christ. When we become born again Christians... It begins the journey of learning from Jesus. May is a learner of Jesus. All the way down to our youngest members. We are all learners of Jesus. And this should be our attitude. It should be our posture. It should be the way our life is bent. Instead of spending our life justifying ourselves and propping ourselves up and demonstrating to others how successful we are and how our way is right. Instead, what everybody should take from us is that we are learners of Jesus. I'm learning. I'm growing. I'm learning how to do things better with his power and with his strength. Yes, I am wrong all the time, folks. That's our posture. I'm a learner of Jesus. And you're going to be disappointed with me, but by God's grace and with Jesus' help, I'm going to learn to do better. I wonder how often people get that spirit from you versus a spirit of you've got it all together, you know the right way, and you have the right answers. talk to you about church growth, soul growth, or both. What I mean by that is, is, especially in the last 75, 80 years, in our country, there has been a huge emphasis on the proper way to grow a church. 
And it's very, very much oriented by you do your programs this way, you do these techniques, and your church will grow. And it's centered around what we do. Then there's soul growth. As we grow in our personal walks with the Lord, individually, but also as we are doing that together as a church, there is a soul growth that happens. And that is our primary aim. Now, can it happen to where church grows and soul growth happens both at the same time? Yes. But I want to emphasize that much of the pressure to do church a certain way is not surrounded by, centered on soul growth. It is centered on programs and techniques and what people do. And it goes back to a craving for greatness. Which then causes us to compete. Which then brings us into argument. And I see this represented among churches in an area many times. A church can be very, very focused on its own brand and following certain techniques so it can build up its own local church to the exclusion of God's church in the area. It becomes very self-focused with its techniques and its abilities. And that is unhealthy. And it's amazing how growing a church gets caught up in a quest for greatness. Jesus exposes our harmful perspectives. Jesus teaches us healthy perspectives. And then the unexpected pathway to greatness. The unexpected pathway to greatness. Mark chapter 9 verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Just don't lose this picture here. Jesus took a child in his arms. He said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Here, there's, there's a lot that I don't think we are unable to, we are able to grasp. But here I want to point out that in the original language, Jesus was probably speaking in Aramaic, the, the word for children and servants was the same. And so everybody in all cultures can understand that a, a servant is not somebody great. And yet here Jesus is taking somebody in their culture that they do not consider as great. In their culture, they, they did not put a lot of value on children. In our culture, there's a whole lot, a lot more value put on children, especially in the last 100 or so years. Children have become the center of the adults' worlds in many, many times and occasions. Not always, but much of the time, children are very much the center of our worlds. 
and even in America 150 years ago, and in much of the world, that is not the case. If you want to read anything from the Victorian era in Great Britain, and children were definitely not the center of people's worlds. And so here, Jesus is taking someone that represented basically a servant, someone who had hardly any value, who was not really prioritized hardly at all, and talks about receiving that person. So this, unexpected is unexpected. <laughs> yeah, duh, right? But I'm trying to emphasize here is we this is an unexpected move for Jesus to do. This was antithetical. This was like taking someone off the street who nobody values at all and taking them into his arms and saying, hey, take this person, receive this person, make this person priority in your life. And that is the pathway to true greatness. We take one of our state officials and we, uh, a state official goes and someone, let's say our governor of the state, and he goes and picks up a beggar off the street. Nobody knows about it. No, there's no cameras, no newspaper journalists. And he goes and spends time with that person, invests in that person. It just doesn't compute for us. The news is not filled with articles about that. This is unexpected. This is it's not something we can comprehend. It's something, it's somebody in your life that um, is real needy and who is not flashy and who is annoying to you. And you would not choose to spend time with that person. And in fact, if you're trying to increase your reputation and build your resume, that's the last person that you would spend time with. And Jesus is saying that's the first person you should spend time with. The things that you argue about to try to get your way out and your perspective and your personal glory out there for everybody to see is the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. It's interesting for young people as they enter into adulthood and this whole array of opportunities before them and understandably so, they want to pick the thing that makes them the most successful and the most happy and perhaps brings them the most recognition. And one of the youthful lusts is just reaching for greatness as a young person and living your life very selfishly. Then as you move into middle age, there is this, there's, there's going to be a changing of the guard and more and more as the former leaders are uh, moving on into retirement, there's a lot of fight and a lot of jockeying for position as new leadership positions open up and new opportunities open up. And then as folks move into those senior years, there's a whole lot of legacy management where you have done all this and established all this and I want to keep it great as I move off the scene. It's a lot of jockeying for greatness and jockeying for personal glory in various ways. And true greatness 
and the pathway to it is unexpected. And it's not managed by you. You are not able to produce that greatness. It's an unexpected pathway, and when it happens and how it happens is unexpected. So, there is this matter of learning what greatness is. And it's turning our perspectives inside out. And it requires a humility. It requires a patience. It requires a waiting on the Lord. How many of the Christians who did not make it into our books and our biographies that we've all been, oh, wow, there was such a great Christian, great missionary, great leader, great father, great pastor, whatever. How many of those folks never made it into the books that we read? And yet, in God's time, they will receive great reward. Because God is not so unjust that he overlooks our faithful service. In order for something to be great does not mean that other people have to see it. In order for something to be great does not mean that other people have to appreciate it. In order for something to be great doesn't mean that other people have to give you great remuneration. Our culture is the opposite when it comes to greatness. And our sinful hearts and our pride and our selfishness are the opposite of what greatness is. So the beginning of greatness is learning to go to the Lord in humility and allow Him to shape your heart. The beginning of greatness is to let go of your own ideas of life and let Jesus shape your life. The beginning of greatness is to stop being preoccupied with the things that interest you most and learning to let Jesus be the thing that interests you most, the person who interests you most. And allow him to shape your schedule. Schedules here in America are beasts. They run us. Opportunity here in America runs us. The beginning of greatness means that you let Jesus shape your schedule and give you the wisdom and how to handle the opportunity in your life. Jesus exposes our harmful perspectives. Jesus teaches us healthy perspectives and then the unexpected pathway to greatness. We all have flashpoints, points that cause us to get into tangles with other people. Ask God to show you your pride. We all can subtly crave status. We want people to think of us a certain way. Ask God to show you where and when this happens in your heart so that you may address it in his way and his time. This is a very foolish craving, my friends, that we struggle with. I pray that we all would have a humility in response to the Lord. Let him show us what we need to see. Take a few minutes and respond to the Lord.